0: You're listening to a Broadmoor Podcast production. In today's message, Pastor Josh Brady begins Romans chapter 8 as we continue in our series through Romans. In this passage, the Apostle Paul talks about the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. As we listen, it's our prayer that God will use His Word to teach us and make us more like Him. Good morning, church. How are we? Great. Thank you so much for being here today. If you have your Bibles, would you open to Romans chapter 8? Now, honestly, as we have prepared for this sermon series, uh, probably now at this point, it would be a year ago in the making, uh, as we put together a preaching schedule and a a life group uh, teaching schedule, what what this would look like and and themes that would follow, um, just, just full transparency, all my cards on the table. I was most excited about this day, this day that we get to open up Romans chapter 8 together, for it is, it is my favorite chapter in all of the Bible. Uh, and, and, and hopefully you are going to see why it is so pivotal in the lives of many believers. And, and if it's not uh, something that is familiar to you today, hopefully by the end of today and then even again at the end of next Sunday, Lord willing, you will have a greater appreciation of Romans chapter 8, but, but that is just the address We would pray that we would have a greater appreciation of the Christ that we call King. Uh, And so, with all of that being said, we we have Romans chapter 8, and we have 17 verses to get through today. Um, But hopefully, here's what you were were wrestling with as we finished last week. Chapter 7 is so good, it brings so much comfort to a weary heart, that maybe you have found yourselves at some point or another, or maybe even today saying... I don't know what to do with the, the strange feeling inside of me. There, there's a side of me that loves God. There's a side of me that loves his word, that wants to, to obey his command for my life. But then there's also, I feel it. I feel it as if it is just something uh, that is pulling at me in every direction, something that wants to do the opposite of all of those things. There's maybe, maybe feelings of, I know the things I should do, but I don't do those things. And, and the things that, that, I, that I, I, I know I shouldn't do, I find myself not only wanting to do those things, but doing them often. What do we do with that? And so that was chapter seven. That's the apostle Paul talking about in our hearts and in our minds, this, this struggle that, that is on this side of eternity, the battle of the flesh, the, the, the battle of the, the sinful and the carnal side of, of who we are. Essentially, when we are reminded that this, that we are, we are anything in our own strength is never going to be enough. So, so particularly when it comes to, to serving God or obeying his word or doing his will, if we attempt to do that in our own strength, in our own might, we are going to come up incredibly short. And it may, it may feel a little bit like this. The end of Romans chapter 7, verses 21 through 25, they say this just as a reminder. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but see in my members, in my body, another law waging war against the law of my mind. It's making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my body. Oh, what a wretch that I am. Who will ever deliver me from this body of death? And then he gives this incredibly resounding answer, this, this kind of soaring answer. and He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who, who can save us? Who, who can fix the mess that's inside of us? And he says, it's God through Christ. That, that's, that's who's gonna clean us up. It, it's not us. We can't do it. Every time we try to put our, our hand to a situation in our own strength and in our own power, we're only going to make it worse. You may not have been here last Sunday, but that statement alone resonates with you because your life is marked by those scars everything that you have ever tried to do in your own strength as it pertains to anything but particularly to morality and following the lord jesus christ you find that when you try to attempt to, to fix it you try to attempt to to mold it or shape it in your own power it is just a mess made worse so paul says what, what do we do who, who can save us from this this life and he says praise be to god through jesus christ our lord we, we were reminded at the very end this is a quote I heard years and years ago. I think Matt Chandler was the one who I first heard say it, but I'm sure it wasn't original to him. But if it were, I want to give him all the credit for it because it resonated with me. It is okay to not be okay, it's not okay to stay that way. I just remember hearing that and then feeling some sort of comfort that came along with it. But as I think back through 24, verse 24 of chapter 7, it says, Oh, what a wicked wretch that I am. Who can deliver me from this body of death? The word deliver comes up to my mind again and again. What does deliverance mean in this context? What does rescue mean? What does it actually look like for us? So the point of chapter seven isn't just resolve yourself to be powerlessly broken before sin. The point of chapter seven is Christ is the conquering king that's come to deliver us from this body of death. So what does that deliverance look like today for you and for me, for this side of eternity on into the next? So we now we get to chapter eight and it's a look at the reality of the redeemed right here, right now and in this moment. So if you are ready, Let's go. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So just, just that statement alone, we could live here, spend the rest of the sermon. we got 16 more verses to go. But let me, let me just kind of set the stage with this one verse, okay? So today, right now, and in this moment, there is no more payment for sin required. That that is that condemnation. That's what that word means. There's no more payment for sin required for those of us who are united with Christ. That that should be good news for you. This is huge news in light of what we've learned in Romans so far. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. All right, so if we've all sinned, And the payment that we now have before us is death for our sin. That means everybody has this payment that's due. But what we've just heard in Romans chapter 8 verse 1, that if we be in Christ, there is therefore now no payment due. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We all owe a debt that we can't pay. And when the time comes to pay up, the consequences... For insufficient funds are eternal. So so we go back to the end of chapter seven, and and we hear that again, oh, what a wicked, wretch man uh, man that I am, who will deliver us from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I remember the first time I read this, like really read this, and it resonated with me. I I think I remember myself being later in high school and and just walking through a lot of stuff and, and, and just feeling the weight of life and guilt and shame. And just coming to Romans chapter 8 verse 1 and reading, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that truth gripped my heart. And I just remember putting down the Bible and saying, God, thank you. I pray that we all find an experience that's something to that, not not a sense of reading and putting down your Bible and saying thank you, but a sense of deep gratitude knowing that that this, this is applied to you only because of the grace of Jesus Christ. As awesome as the truth that this is, there's so much more to the good news of God. Look at verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So Paul here gives the Holy Spirit sort of a new name. This is what he says. The Spirit of life. The Holy Spirit has united you to Christ And because of that union has set you free from the law of sin and death. Go go back to the the earlier chapters uh, of Romans as we we walk through that. But now as we get into Romans chapter 8, really through Romans chapter 11, the Bible is going to be very clear with us how salvation works. Now just as a friendly heads up from me to you, this section can and will wreck a self-centered view of salvation. Here's what I mean by that. When we get into Romans 8, 9, 10, and 11, I would pray that you would read ahead. I pray that you have already read ahead and this is where you find your view of salvation. But if it is not, if your view of salvation comes from somebody who told you something about somebody that shared with them a long time ago and you read this, it may feel incredibly different. I don't want you to feel alarmed or caught off guard, but I do want us to understand when we come to God's word, this is true always, not just Romans 8 through 11. When we come to God's word, we get God's word to inform our view. We don't come and inform God's word with our view. What what I mean by that is we don't take what, what has been passed down generationally to us and use that lens then to decide what the Word of God is saying to us and then apply it to our life. That's how we can get pretty me-centric in all of our life, but particularly when it comes to salvation, that's really bad because we can use and interchange religious words and we can say Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit and we can say salvation and repentance and we'll apply those labels to things that don't match and we will think that we are walking in biblical response when the Bible speaks a different word. And so as we journey into this today, I pray more than anything else what this does is this frees us. It frees us from us, us. it frees us from trying harder to be better, it frees us from religiosity, and it frees us to worship him for all that he is. That's my hope here. And so as we journey together, you're going to feel some moments of soaring glory and say, God, thank you for that. And then there's going to be some moments that you say, I don't know if I like that. The Bible doesn't care if you like it. It's the truth. And so with that being said, may we jump into verse three and see what we're speaking here for God has done just just all right pause whatever else is said you need to understand who did it who did it God did it for God has done for for God for God loved the world That he, God, sent his son into the world. That whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Who brought salvation into the world? God. Who saves? God. Who sustains? God. Who redeems? God. Who's going to glorify one day? God. Because we need to hear this today, okay? So verse 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, that's us, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh... And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. All right. So we must remember the law is good. It's holy. It's, it's right. Having it given to us is a great grace extended by the father to us, but the law couldn't save. It was never meant to. And we can't save ourselves by obeying the law because our flesh is weak. So God did something to help us in our helpless estate. He sent his son, now Paul uses very measured words here, in the likeness of sinful flesh. There's so much theological goodness here, but just quickly. Jesus was fully God and fully man. But he was completely sinless. There was no sin in him at all. There was no sin nature in him at all. Jesus came and did what we, all of humanity, could not do, and that was to fulfill the law. And when he fulfilled the law, he completed it. Doing that, he condemned sin in the flesh. All right, so just to be clear on what Jesus did, he didn't just live a perfect life for the sake of living a perfect life. He took the entirety of the law and he fulfilled it in and of himself. So for us, even the best case scenario is that we could keep the law for a little bit of time. Maybe if you're really resolved, maybe if you're growing in maturity and leaps and bounds, there are seasons of life that observably, as you read God's word, you could say, yes, I've done that. I've not I've not lied. I've not murdered. I'm not stolen. I'm not committed adultery I honor my father and mother. I have no other gods like like we will take the checklist and check it off But at some point in time either past present and we know in our future we're going to fall again So it was never about keeping the law even for a moment It was about taking the law and fulfilling it forever in its entirety That's what Jesus did he completed the law Doing that he condemned sin in the flesh. He paid the price that we owed. And because of that payment credited to our eternal account, the righteous requirement of the law, sustained perfection, was applied to us. God applied perfection to us through Christ the Son. Church, I know you know that. If you've been in church longer than five minutes, you've heard a version of this, but don't miss the implication of this. Nowhere so far has it said, because of what you've done, you are saved. Nowhere does it say, because you came to the Christian tryout, God was really impressed with you and needed you on the team. It is by God's grace alone, through faith that we are saved. Faith in who? Faith in Christ, not in us. Because the payment that we owed was paid. That payment is credited to our eternal account and the righteous requirement of the law, which is sustained perfection, not just just perfection for a day or for a season or for a year or for a half a lifetime, but forever was applied to us. That's great news. So everyone has the requirement of the law applied to them. That's great news for everybody. Is that what it says? This is important. Look at the end of verse four. Who walk, those, the, these are the people it's applied to. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So there's a condition here. It's a really big condition. Only those that will walk according to the spirit. Those who were born again through Christ. Is this righteous requirement applied to them? Look at verse 5, 6, and 7, and 8. For those who live according to the flesh, set their mind on the things that are the flesh. And those who live according to the the Spirit, set their mind on the things that is the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. All right, so so remember, we are in complete contrast to chapter 7 right now. Chapter 7 is where we find ourselves a lot of days where we struggle still in the flesh and we still struggle who can save us from from the wretch that we are. God through Christ can save us. What does that salvation look like? What does that deliverance look like in our life? It looks like a spirit-filled life more than a fleshly-filled life. And this is where we're going to feel a little tension and it's right to feel that. Here's what Paul says kind of in explaining it. Christian God has given us a new mind in Christ. And that mind is to be set on the things of the spirit of life. Paul tells us that when your mind is set on the flesh, on yourself and your strength and in your own power, there's nothing but death. That's the only thing that you can see. But when your mind is set on the spirit, there's life and there's peace. A mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. What does that actually mean? It doesn't submit to God's law. It can't submit to God's law. That type of life cannot and will not please God. That should be enough. Just just you finish reading verses 6 and 7 of chapter 8 should be enough to cause us to say, Oh God, please don't let that be me. Don't let that be my life. Don't let that be my mind. Set my mind on the things that bring life. Philippians 4 is a great example of this. Set my mind on things that are above, not on things that are below. Verse 9, but you, talking to the believer, you, however, are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone... (laughs) Who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. All right, so, so hearing this and reading this, I feel this, can cause a bit of anxiety to well up in your heart. What do you mean, Joshua? Read, read verse 9 and 10 slowly. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, conditional... Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Conditional. Those are nerve-wracking things. And we may say, oh no, what do I got to do to get those things? This may may cause the religious side of you to kick into overdrive. Okay, well, I want to make sure that the spirit of God dwells in me. I want to make sure that that, that I belong to Christ. So therefore, I'm going to do more and I'm going to try harder and I'm going to be better. Hang on. Just, Just hang on. I pray that these next words that Paul brings in this letter bring you great peace and power. Look at verse 11. If, so again, if is a condition. If the Spirit of Him, the Holy Spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. So we, we have the Holy Spirit's work here. There's the spirit of God that will give life to your mortal bodies, not you. So, so here's why I pray it brings you peace. Even though our religious side kicks in from time to time, what I'm telling you is, if it is born out of religion, that is a cold heart trying to do godly things without God powering it, then it's going to fail and it will never be enough. So, so just to be clear on that. You can try as hard as you want and you can spend a lifetime doing it. It will never be enough. And so you find yourself saying, oh no, what do we do? Well, here's what Paul says. It is the spirit of God that is going to give life to your body, the same body in chapter seven that's broken and can't do right. He's going to now empower you to be able to do right, to glorify God, to bring him all glory, honor Let us do his name, not you. So we may find ourselves sitting here today, listening right now, saying, is the Spirit powerful enough to fix me given the life that I've lived? Josh, I know the Spirit is powerful, and there's probably some folks in this room that he can help, but you don't know what I've done. All right, so I think Paul gives a great illustration to the extent of the Spirit's power. He raised Christ from the dead. He can handle your life. He raised Christ from the dead. He can handle your life. So yeah, I think he's fine with whatever you've got on the table, whatever baggage you bring. So if I can't try harder or do better to be saved, those things are important after salvation. Those things things are important as we attempt to to glorify God, but, but not prior to salvation. If I can't try harder or do better to be saved, to be united with Christ, then what do I do? So be accordance to the entirety of God's Word, that we throw ourselves at the mercy of God, surrendering our life fully to Him and asking Him to fill us and guide us with His Holy Spirit. So what happens when you do that? What does what biblical salvation look like when it begins to take root in your life? Look at verse 12 and following. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. But if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. All right, so, so church, listen. So, so far, we've talked about there being freedom in Christ and freedom from the law. But what Paul says, don't, don't get it twisted. You are, you are still owned. You, you are owned by the law. You, well, really, you were owned by the enemy. Your sin nature tied you to him and now you've been set free from him and now you're tied to a new master. Paul says it this way. I am a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says my life belongs to him and he calls the shots. And so here, this is what he's saying. Don't don't, don't get it messed up. You're not called to freedom so you can do what you want to do. You're called to freedom so you can do what he wants you to do. We are debtors. Our lives are still owned by someone, probably better understood, our lives are now claimed by someone. We now, today, forever, belong to our Father in heaven for those who are in Christ Jesus. He has given us power and strength to live for His glory. It's only possible, only possible. Listen to me, Baptists, this is hard for us a lot of times because we're nervous. We like God the Father, we like God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit makes us sweat a little. It is only possible... To please the Father by living a Spirit filled life. If there is no Holy Spirit empowerment in you, there is no power in you. And and, and this may be a great time to have a discussion, and and we're probably not going to have it here, but join in our podcast this week. No doubt we will discuss this one. How does one receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? The scriptures are very clear. It teaches that upon salvation, the spirit is given to every believer as a deposit guarantee. That it is the spirit of God that holds us and clings us to Christ. So it is God who saves, God who redeems, and God who sustains. And one day, it will be God who glorifies. None of the process has to do with what we've done to get it or what we've done to lose it. It is God in his grace alone that does it all. Look at verse 15. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received a spirit of adoption of sons whom we cry, Abba, Father. All right, so we were claimed by the Father, by the Father in heaven. God says, and this is is going to become very clear as we get into chapter 9 and 10 and 11. God looks down from heaven and says, I want you. He chooses you and calls you by name. It is his sovereign choice whom he saves, and redeemed he has chosen you. This should be good news for you because it is not about what you've done. Again, it wasn't at the trial, it's not going through his notes. He chose you because he loves you. We receive something special, not just, not, not, we receive something special, not a spirit of slavery. It's not this idea of, oh no, we've been traded from one impossible master, the enemy, to another impossible master, the father. Instead, we've received the spirit, this is what Paul says, as the adoption of sons and daughters, where our hearts cry is Dad. The word Abba, Father here is so important. This is huge. Huge when it was written, huge when, it's, uh, when we read it today. Back then, Jews would not dare use the term Abba. It is too familiar. Honestly, it is, it is too childlike. When they referred to God, it was very respectful. But funny enough, Paul uses the same word here. That Jesus used in the garden as Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross he's about to be arrested and he is pleading with the father if it if this if this cup could could be passed from him if, if this could happen any other way he says Abba if this cup would pass from me but not my will but yours Paul says that same language that same relationship is yours in Christ this, this, has, this is loaded for me. This is a lot of emotions. Uh, some of you know my story. Some of you may not. I'm Josh Braddy, born Josh Rubion. My, my dad, who I call dad now, adopted me when I was about eight, when, when he married my mom. And I remember, for the longest time, he was Mr. Willie to me. And there was just kind of one day, it was kind of some weird stuff, like tension. I was like, I don't know what to call you, like Mr. Willie, Mr. Bratty, like what do I call you? And he said, I want you to call me Dad. That's a big deal. Microcosm to the beautiful picture of the gospel. There's so many times in our prayer, so many times when we come to the Father, that we come with all of these elegant words because we feel like we, we need to address Him in some sort of way to get His attention as if He is far off, and we, we need to do it perfectly, and we need to do it rightly, and we, we, just, we, just, we just need to, to make sure that we, we, we dot all of our I's and cross all of our T's so He knows we exist. And what Paul says is, He's your Father calling Dad. This is the relationship that we have in Christ. You have been freed from religion and you've been born into a relationship with your father. Where kids get special rights to do things and to say things and do uh, certain kind kind of ways and their father looks at them not with disdain, not with unknowing, but with laughter. During the beautiful and powerful worship service that we just had, I'm watching a pink unicorn do flips right over there because my daughter's like, hey, look what this thing could do. And I am so thankful that she could, that she thought enough that, hey, dad's, you know, he's going up to preach in a second, but I want him to see this unicorn do a handstand because who wouldn't want to do that? This is what Paul's saying. Look, you're you're free from the law. You're, You're free from that. But, man, look, you're born again into something greater, something bigger, something more powerful, something more special. You call him Father. Verse 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children, then heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. All right, so here's what Paul says. Here, here's what we receive in biblical salvation. Here's what we receive when we are adopted into the family of God. We become children of God, sons and daughters of God. As if that weren't good enough, he goes into deeper detail. You'd then become heirs of God. What does an heir get? Everything their father has? Everything. And then there, just, there may be this thought, this, this idea floating around in your mind, like I get that, like I'm heirs with God, that is, I can't even understand or fathom how great that is, but I got a king that I serve and I know God loves him because it's his only son that he sent to die for the world. And what Paul says here is not only are you an heir with God, but you're a co-heir with Christ. That's a big deal. That means that what Christ has is yours. Again, none of this because of what we've brought to the table. All of this because of who God is and what He's brought to the table on our behalf. But then you get to the end of verse 17. This is where we're going to end today. So our worship team can come back out, but I want you to pack up because I know you might be sitting here thinking already, oh no, what do we do with, with what just ended here? So, so we're soaring. This is great. No condemnation. This is great. We're heirs. This is great. We call him father, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. It may feel a bit of cold water on a hot fire because nobody signed up for the suffering package. We want the blessed package. We, 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 want, we want that good stuff that God gives. We don't want any of the hard stuff. But before we get spun up, we're going to speak more to this next week as we jump in to verse 18 and finish out the chapter. I want you to remember, remember John 16, 33. If you don't have that written down, you need to write that verse down. If that's not highlighted in your Bible and you do highlighting, that needs to be highlighted, underlined, italicized, and all the things. John 16, says this. These are the words of Christ. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. Because in this world you will have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome this world. You need to write that down and nail it. Jesus promised we're going to go through some hard stuff. We're going to go through some pain. To be associated with him. To be clear. This isn't speaking about you were walking to the bathroom in the middle of the night and you stubbed your toe. Glory, I'm suffering for you. Some of y'all suffered last night. I know. Saw you walking in funny. This is to be associated. This is to be in Christ. United with Christ. This is to say, and, and hear me out. We live in a culture. We are not very far away from if you claim to be a Christian, you will suffer. I don't want you to find it strange, brothers and sisters, when that happens. For our father told us it would. And his son, our king, told us it would. But he said, we don't need to worry about that because he's already overcome this world. It'll be a short time. We'll suffer a little bit. But if you continue to cling to Christ, you continue to live that spirit filled life, the promise of glory is yours. Again, you may hear that and say, Josh, that sounds awful conditional on what I've done, and you've just spent about 30 minutes telling me it's not about what I've done. Mm -mm. Because if the only way you're going to be able to endure is going to be the Holy Spirit's power in you, if you are in Christ then this power belongs to you. So the question now becomes this morning. Where do you stand today? Positionally, where are you? Are you an outsider looking in? You know a lot about religion. You know all the names and the players. But you are not united to Christ. You have never surrendered to him. You've never said, God, this is my life in totality. The good, the bad, and the ugly, take it but you sit at a distance and you know names and you use names. If that's you, you need to change your position. God has offered the invitation to you for God so loved the world. We'll speak more to that in the weeks to come. How do you know? How do you know God's calling you? How do you know God chose you? How do you know God God calls you His own? How do you know that? For me, every day, it is reassured by the Holy Spirit's conviction in my life that when I lean towards sin or I step off into sin or I swim in sin. It is a very clear conviction saying that is not your life. You will not live there and if you do, you will be miserable every second. It's time to move back. In the power of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, we die to sin, we say no to sin and we fall in line again with our King. Maybe you're here today and you are in. You are united with Christ and you're walking with him. Look, here's what I would encourage you in this invitation time and every invitation time. Beg God to save more. Beg God to to bring his salvation to the forefront of the minds of those who are in this room who need it so desperately. But maybe today this is your first time in church and you're like, man, I don't even know what we're doing. What is going on? Here's what I know. If you've never heard one day the gospel of Jesus Christ... I know that your life is a mess because you've tried to do it your own way and it's not worked yet. You may not know the names and you may not know the players. You may not know the verbiage that we've used today, but you know something is off. Something is broken that you can't fix. And there's an opportunity for you today to come and put your hope and trust in the one who can fix it and put that life back together. His name is Jesus Christ. So in that... I pray, church, that we move into an invitation time and respond if the Holy Spirit would lead us. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for today and we thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for the truth that is there and the opportunity to respond to that truth. Romans 8.1 is so good. We are no longer condemned. We no longer have to pay the penalty that was before us because of Christ, what you've done. So if we pray, we pray as we stand here today, Father, that you show us where we are and how to rightly respond. For those in the room who are believers, I pray that their hearts are rejoicing right now because of what you've done in their life. I pray for those in the room who are outsiders. They're religious, but they're not born again, God, that today would be the day of their salvation. And Lord, I pray for those who are way, way far and they they have no clue. They, They don't even know what to say or where to begin. Lord, I pray that you would put it in their heart to cry out for salvation today, that they would call upon a God whom they have never heard, but no doubt they have felt time and time again. May they put their hope and trust in your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to respond now. Holy Spirit, have your way in this room. We love you, Jesus. It's in your powerful name that we pray and we now stand and respond. Church, would you stand with me?